something of the habit, we need to exercise a little restraint from acting it out, even though we see the pain. Restraint is energizing and helpful in two ways. First, it takes a lot of mental energy, determination, intention, energy, not to act out. And second, all the energy that we would have dissipated in acting out is now available to us. And so restraint, rather than being a stifling of energy, actually is kind of a a generator of energy. And facing pain requires all that energy. Whether it's physical pain or the mental pain, unhappiness, disappointment, whatever it is, it takes a steady attention, which takes a steady energy to see it. And as we open to the pain, as we open to the place of congestion in our heart, reflected in our body somewhere, it comes with a whole uh, baggage car full of stuff. And so sometimes when we get close to pain, emotional pain, physical pain, we find that the mind can't sit still. It can't stay with it. It gets spun out into thoughts and plans and memories and sensations and judgments and this and that. It just, you bring it in, you bring it in close and it gets spun out into some memory. You bring it in close and you get caught up in some sensation. You bring it in close and you get spun out in some judgment of it. You get in close and some doubt about practice arises. And we think, this isn't working. This is working. This is the very unfolding, the unwinding of this knot. This knot is that mass of unacknowledged stuff that when we get close to it and it starts loosening up a little bit, you know, the solvent of mindfulness loosens the glue it all starts kind of floating apart and coming in front of our eyes. And we see. It's this, it's that. It's not restlessness. It's not avoiding. It's not running away. It's not bad mindfulness. That is the nature of seeing into psychophysical knot. That's what it's like. This cacophony of real and imagined, physical and mental, pain and suffering cascades into our awareness. If we watch it, if we can tolerate it, if we can stand it, all the energy of that spin becomes available for finding a new way to relate to that experience, to that pain, to that memory. It takes that much energy. 
to find a new way, to climb out of the rut, to see beyond the rut another way. One student recently acknowledged to me that they had suffered from bulimia for 15 years, daily uh, seeking the um, herbal laxatives and, and, and some other pills that would allow them to uh, have a certain feeling about themselves daily. And if they didn't have it, the, the, the body would go into withdrawal symptoms, shaking and, and just trembling. And they acknowledged that sometimes they would have to drive hours to find the right thing, whatever their particular stuff was, in order to get this habit, get this need fulfilled. Even after 10 years of Dhamma practice, this was still going on. Until one time, they said, they saw that this mass of stuff that was associated and affiliated that came up around this addiction was just mind and body. That's all. This whole mass of stuff, this, this, this tremendous amount of feelings and sensations and just frenetic stuff was just mind and body. And they said as soon as they saw that, there was this tremendous relief as if this huge burden is lifted off their life. Never engaged in that behavior again. Just immediately, just cut, just like that. What this person saw is that there is a way out of our habits, of our addictions. In that, they saw their denial. Fifteen years of living like that, never really acknowledging it to themselves. As soon as that insight came, and that, that the burden of that addiction just dissolved, they saw how much of their life was living a lie. Just totally living a lie. The deception of everyone around them. The deception of to themselves. They saw the possibility. They actually saw freedom. We all have that possibility. Whatever addiction, whatever compulsion, obsession is running through your mind and whatever it is you're acting out. We can see it and we can let go. Stonehouse was a 14th century Chinese hermit 
monk, and he confidently wrote, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. People just imagine their minds are hard. Several years ago, I went, I went hiking in the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon is one of these, it is the just most amazing place. It is truly awesome. It's just exquisite. It is beyond understanding. It just, it blows your mind. It really does. The Grand Canyon is being formed by the waters of the Colorado River leaving Colorado and flowing to the ocean, going through several states. And in the flowing of that water, it has worn this channel down through the rock. At the same time, the rock has been being pushed up from beneath. And now this gorge is, I think it's a mile deep in places. It is, it is truly amazing. I mean, I, for those of you who've been there, you know what I'm saying. It's just, you can't really think about it. All you can do is soak it up with your senses. Well, our mindfulness practice is something like that, doing something similar like that. As we persist gently in just inserting mindfulness into the flow of our life as often as we can, we gradually and gently wear down through the habit-encrusted layers of the mind. In the process, we expose this fear, aversion, attachment, other forms of suffering, and we, we expose them and we wear them away. We expose them we wear them away. And in time, we get down to the bedrock of our life. What's really important? What's really going on? Beneath all of our obsession, all of our addictions, all of our confusion, what is it to be alive? What is it to be aware? The challenge we face in our Dharma practice is establishing and maintaining good practice habits. When we hear the Dharma, we resonate with the Dharma, the aspiration to realize the Dharma for ourselves arises in the mind. The foundation or the support for this aspiration is faith. 
sada. And sada is not mere belief or hope. It's a confidence and an inner conviction, really, that is based on some experience or experiences that this practice is the practice for me. It works. We understand that. We have faith in that. And so that's the foundation for our practice. One way that this faith manifests is this little voice in the mind that says, you can do that. Whatever you imagine Dharma practice being, whatever you imagine the result being, this face says, you can do that. And so we begin. But that little voice takes an awful beating with practice. Because it seems, it appears in practice that we can't do that. It takes a lot of reminding ourselves again and again and again what it is we're doing here, why we even came, why we're doing Dharma practice. It's this repetition of remembering of our pain, our aspiration, our intention, that keeps that little voice, that flame of faith, alive. My early years of Dhamma practice were a dismal failure. I don't mean a dismal failure of practice, I mean a dismal failure of even remembering what it is I'm supposed to be doing. You know, self-humiliation is very humbling. My old habits of self-pity, frustration, disappointment, anger, was all I could see. All I could see. That little voice of confidence was so tiny. And yet, something keeps it alive. A little reminder. This is something you need, something you want, something you can do. Just putting ourselves in an environment like this, coming into the meditation hall, associating with other mindful people, mostly, uh, having a habit of bowing, if you wish, taking the refuges and precepts, reawakening faith, devotion, energy, just taking our habitual, familiar sitting posture. All of these feed the flame and awaken mindfulness. 
putting ourselves in the position awakens mindfulness. Our behavioral habits exert a powerful force on our mind. When I was a monk in Burma, in an attempt to expand the continuity of mindfulness, I would take one of the ordinary mundane things that we do every day and make it a practice. I remember when I took brushing my teeth as a practice. You know, we brush our teeth every day, once, twice, maybe more. Is it a practice yet? Have you really got it down what brushing your teeth is at the sensory level? Or is it just an opportunity to stand in front of the mirror and check out your hair? Right? Or the bulletin board. We walk by the bulletin board a dozen times a day. How many times do we note the intention to look? Yet? Once? Yeah, I was practicing in um, a center in Malaysia where the meditation hall was on the third floor. And so there was three flights of stairs to go up to get there. I really got down the noting sequence of climbing stairs. Lifting, placing, pushing, sliding the hand up the banister. Lifting, placing, pushing, sliding the hand up the banister. How many times a day? Up the stairs, down the stairs. And rather than just, you know, considering all of these ordinary mundane things, kind of, not the real practice. They are the practice. But when we make everything in our life practice, we really bring our habits into focus. So, so pick, pick something to do for the next week. And I suggest the opening and closing of doors. How many times do you go in and out of your room a day? There's a hundred thousand things to be noted in going through that doorway. Or is it just a habit? Why do we need to fall into the habit, the comfort of this habit? What is it covering up? What are we not seeing? What pain is there if we stop and pay attention? A favorite habit of the uh, younger Burmese monks, the English-speaking Burmese monks, was to come up behind me or beside me while I was standing waiting to go to lunch or go to an interview or something. And, you know, you're always just kind of fidgeting. You're just kind of... You know, especially when you wear robes, you know, you always got to adjust your robes and fix this and whatever. And they would come up and they'd just stand behind me and say, are you noting, adjusting? It was, initially it was a big pain, 
But it really helped me see this, this habit, this habit of fidgeting. It covers up a tremendous amount A real turning point in practice comes when we make the transition from practice being something we do to get better, to get rid of what we don't want, to get something we do want, to get more calm, to get more peaceful, to get enlightened. When we give up that misunderstanding of practice, and see that practice is really a way of life. It's not a technique. There's really no goal. At some point you realize it's the only thing to do. To just try to be a little more present. Not for anything it's going to give you or get you. But just because it's the only way to not suffer. To not be caught in some blind covering up of pain. As we uncover our habits, we learn to let go. We see that letting go is a great gift that we give ourselves. The practice of letting go is the composting of pain and the cultivating of wisdom. It is possible to let go of habits. It is possible to become proficient in mindfulness. The more we see, the more we know. The more we know, the more we can let go of. The more we let go, the freer we become. So let's sit for a minute. I identified repetition as a powerful force in our conditioning. And we can see this in the power that habits have in our life. We can also see it in the phenomena that occurs once someone has done something for the first time and others follow uh, suit, whether it's the Buddha getting enlightened and others 
following after, repeating that, or whether it's sky surfing. Once, once it has been done or achieved, then it sets up a possibility in others' minds. It's important for us to look at repetition as a conditioning influence in our life so that we can begin to see how we are caught or where we are caught in habit and so that we can begin to see how this habit or habits condition and perpetuate chronic suffering. By noticing, by seeing the power, noticing the acting out of habit, we can then begin to extricate ourselves from that repetitive conditioning. One of the underlying premises of the Buddha's teaching is through appropriate practices, we can eliminate the unwholesome states of mind that cause suffering and replace them with wholesome states of mind. We can eliminate bad habits, and we can cultivate skillful habits. One way that repetition conditions our behavior is through the power of routine. The flow of our personal life is channeled significantly by routine. Being able to rely on the schedule of events in our society makes for something of a smooth day-to-day functioning, a predictability. And in that predictability, there is a certain security, a certain stability, a certain support for our life. Because this predictable routine relieves us from being on guard all the time. We can relax a little bit from the clinging hypervigilance or the kind of the fearful withdrawal from life because we know what to expect when the clock strikes 10, 12, or whatever. A routine or the power of routine is essential in support of harmonious communities. On a retreat like this, our day-to-day life doesn't vary much. The routine is pretty fixed. And it's pretty predictable what life in its outward form is going to be. With this 
regularity of routine, with this lack of surprises, so to speak, it gives us the opportunity to become very intimate with what is familiar and usually taken for granted. We can kind of step back from this kind of excitement of the new, looking for that, wondering what is coming next. And that predictability or that kind of routine helps us calm down, stabilize, settle into a tranquil space so that we can allow the moment in all of its mundaneness to be seen more deeply, more intimately. Within that safety of routine, we can open our heart. We can see the truth of suffering more intimately. We can see the truth of the end of suffering more intimately. As a friend who comes to our retreats on Maui each year, and he uh, cooks, he assists with the cooking, and he has a great sense of humor, and he of course, makes practice humor. And he says, you know, being on a retreat like this for 28 days, this is the August retreat, he says, it gives you 28 times to try to perfect whatever it is you're doing. You know, watching the sunrise, washing your dishes at breakfast, or whatever. And so he marks the days of the retreat by saying, take one, reciting the precepts, how'd you do? Hmm, not too good. Next day, take two, reciting the precepts. Hmm, doing a little better. Hmm, take three, reciting the precepts. And on like that. You only have, you know, what, 87 Dharma talks to listen to. <laughs> this is number 44. How you doing? This view of routine fits our understanding that Dharma practice is an opportunity to become more mindful. Robert Thurman, the Buddhist scholar, acknowledges that Buddhists are into a lot of practice. Practice, practice, practice. What he wants to know is, when's the performance? But routine has its costs. Sometimes we feel numbed and oppressed by the routine structure here. Sometimes monotony deadens our spirit. Sometimes we feel that the schedule is rigid, inflexible, stifling, and smothering. And finally, some of us take resort in being a rebel, going contrary to the schedule, contrary to the routine, and we get stuck there. Predictability by itself is no guarantee, unless it is accompanied by 
a careful sensitivity as to how we fit or how we relate to the routine. Each of us has our own responsibility to find our way with the routines of our life. We each have to learn how to feel our way into the day and not rigidly apply routine. So routine is the first way we see conditioning power of repetition. A second way we notice the effect of repetition is in discovering how powerful our habits are. It is, I'm sure you all have noticed, excruciatingly humbling to feel powerless in the face of your habits, whether they're behavioral or mental. They have a life of their own that is in control much of the time. And we live out our life on automatic pilot. That automatic pilot being the power of habit. Many times yogis report how they feel as if they are slaves to their habit, as if they have no control, as if they are addicted to planning, addicted to anxiety, addicted to thinking. Therefore, we should ask ourselves, If these habits are so strong and are so disempowering of our intention to practice, what's a habit? Habit is behavior of first resort. It is the groove in the mind that has been worn through repeated behavior. And the imprint of that behavior now appears indelible. Our behavior runs in a rut. A bad habit is behavior that is rooted in the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's unwholesome or unskillful because it causes pain. It causes suffering. Good habit is a habit that's rooted in the three wholesome roots. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or generosity, love, and understanding. It's skillful or good because it creates the foundation for happiness. But habits have an unprompted intention in the mind. They've been undertaken so many times, we don't even have to think about it anymore. The impulse to act habitually is unprompted. We don't need to even encourage ourselves. And it's this unpromptedness which makes it so difficult to see. 
the Visuddhimagga, that compendium of Dharma teachings, identifies habit as that which gives us our personality type. What we do most often becomes our personality. Given what we now know about habit, if we had only known long ago, we might have heeded the sign on a southern back road that said, choose your rut carefully. You're going to be in it a long time. The attribute of mindfulness, which is most important in uncovering habit, is remembering. Remembering is the one quality that is absent in habit. Remembering with mindfulness is remembering what we are doing, remembering the present moment. And it is this remembering which allows us to exercise some restraint, to reflect carefully, to reconsider, and to refuse to act out of unwholesomeness. It is also remembering that allows us to consider the consequences of our actions. When we remember the consequences of similar past actions, and we let that guide our future actions, that's wisdom. Wisdom is remembering the consequences of your actions. But as Joseph acknowledged, you know, it isn't difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. Don Juan had that understanding, and he taught Carlos Castaneda to change his habits. To notice first, do you put your left shoe on before the right? And if so, start putting your right on before the left. If you always thread your belt from left to right, start threading it from right to left. And as soon as that becomes a habit, then change back. Suzaki Roshi would arbitrarily appoint his students at his center to the different staff positions of cook, uh, meditation hall monitor, and others. You didn't have to know how to cook to be appointed cook. You just had to do what he said. Two things happen. <laughs> One is, you let go of any uh, identification with being able to or not able to cook. And since the positions were changed every couple of months, you knew you didn't have to suffer with present conditions for very long. Addiction is compulsive repetition of an unhealthy behavior. Obsessive indulgence in a substance or behavior. The harm 
that addiction does to ourselves, to others, is enormous. We see it in our society everywhere. And yet, the attachment to that immediate gratification of that addictive behavior is so strong that we can deny all of that pain, all of that suffering, for that momentary hit gratification. This gratification blinds us to the pain, to the suffering. It's mindfulness, mindfulness's task to expose it. And with mindfulness practice, we uncover and recognize these, the most intimate of our habits, mental and physical. We become painfully aware of our habit. It's not that mindfulness makes or creates the pain, it's that we finally stop indulging in that sense of gratification. And when we do, we see just how painful it really is. Mindfulness acts as the solvent of that attachment. I'm sure you've discovered in your time here how even the most mundane, and maybe it is the mundane, things in our life easily become a habit. How many days into this retreat did it take you to establish new habits? Mindfulness is accompanied by a quality of mind called ujjukata, which is straightness of mind or rectitude. And this is the inability to deceive ourselves. Mindfulness sees things clearly. The spin we have put on the activities of our life suddenly stops spinning. And we see our activities and behavior as they truly are. Without rationalization, without justification, without any uh, explanation. And so when we review our personal history, through the lens of straight mindfulness. We see our life quite nakedly. And at times it's very painful. We see the roots of our actions, not just the reasons we've given them. 
This personal history review which mindfulness takes us on is relentless and uncompromising. You remember that movie, Groundhog Day? Here we are, getting another opportunity to see that behavior of the past again and again and again and again and again until we see it as it really is. The pain we uncover in this review is invaluable. You should welcome it because it tells you what is true. What behaviors of yours have caused pain and what behaviors have caused happiness. And it's only by seeing clearly with unadulterated, unspinning eyes that we can really know for ourselves. And when we can acknowledge the pain, we have the key to letting go of unskillful habits. That's the key. Without seeing the pain, without seeing the suffering, without seeing the limitation that habit places on us, we'll never let go. There's no reason. Once we let go, or once we open to this pain, a prerequisite to letting go of the habit, then we can seek the support that encourages us, that supports us to accept the challenge of letting go of these habits of suffering. One form of support, of course, is guidance from teacher or teaching, someone who's previously gone through the process. The Buddha in the Kitagiri Sutta lists some of the prerequisites for realizing the truth. And the first is having faith in a teacher, a teaching. Then, paying respect, listening, understanding, practicing, striving before realizing the truth for yourself. One of the qualities most helpful in hearing the Dharma is humility. Understanding that there might be something in this teaching we don't yet know. There might be something that is really powerful beyond our imagining. But if we approach the teaching from a limited space of understanding, we don't get it. We don't get that the power 
of the teaching. Another support is, of course, just modifying your behavior. Finding a replacement activity when you start to engage or when you find yourself engaging in bad habits. I have a habit of being impatient. Don't know where I got it. But it's my behavior of first resort. Whether it's grocery line, bank line, traffic light, waiting for Kamala, it really doesn't matter. It can be most anything. And it's amazing how much suffering it causes me and probably others, but me for sure. And only recently, amazing, (laughs) only recently, I've actually felt empowered to do something about it, not just feeling victimized by it, or self-righteous, more likely. Not victimized, just self-righteous. And it is so simple. Once you see how painful it is, just stop. I've been asking this question a lot of others around here. What is it that allows the veil of ignorance to lift so that we can see the pain? What is it? I mean, we, we all have some pain that we know about already. We also have some pain that we don't yet know about. What has got to happen before that blindness clears away? I don't know yet. I'm still looking. When we find ourselves caught in or about to engage in an unskillful behavior, habit. Here is the place for skillful use of distraction. You know all those distractions you've been uh, practicing? Here's the place for it. Soon as you find yourself about to or deep in the midst of something unskillful, start thinking. Start planning. Start worrying. Do anything. You know, in this... I'm only half kidding. You know, in this in this practice to discover, uncover, let go of these unhelpful mental and physical behaviors, Individual willpower is rarely sufficient. It's rarely enough. We need the support of others. It's invaluable. To feel empowered, to be encouraged, to accept the advice of, 
Can you imagine doing the work you're doing alone, isolated where no one cared about what you were doing? Nobody cared. Didn't understand what you're doing? Don't care. Would you do it? Not likely. Having spiritual friends, being in a community is invaluable. And even the hermit, off in some isolated cave or mountaintop or monastery, even though they may be living and practicing alone, they are firmly woven into the web of some community that understands what they're doing and supports them. And we know that when we're off in those places. There were many times in my practice in Burma when there were times when there weren't other Westerners around or I was in the forest of Thailand in a very remote place. And, you know, when it gets difficult, you start looking for some support. Just remembering that this three-month retreat was going on was enough. Just knowing there's a hundred people sitting there doing the same thing I'm doing. I don't see them. I don't hear them. Thank goodness. But <laughs> tremendous support just from knowing that others that you know or even don't know value what you're doing. One quality of practice that is helpful when facing pain is restraint. Because it is our habitual behavior which covers it up, which distracts us from the pain, which blinds us to it. 